0: Hey friends, welcome back to Birds of a Feather Talk Together. This week we have Valentine's Day coming up, so what better to talk about than the amazing mating rituals of the flame bowerbirds. In addition to being one of the most vibrantly beautiful birds in the animal kingdom, they also build actual structures, or bowers, to entice a mate. How romantic. John and Shannon provide a lot of really fascinating information on these incredible birds, from how they can manipulate the size of their pupils, how they use trash to attract a mate, and why we don't know more about these birds in general. It's a fun one, so let's grab our binoculars and get into it. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking about the Flame Bower Bird. Shannon, I'm so excited you suggested this one. And it's funny you brought it up because on Christmas, Amanda and I were showing my parents YouTube videos of the Flame Bower Bird. Like we finished our Christmas and had our dinner, open presents, and we we're just kind of spending time with them. And we were like trying to think of something to do. And we were like, oh, you guys have to see these. Because Shannon, you sent us videos months I ago. Did. Yeah.
1: Ooh, we've and, infected you. It's like a virus. And <laughs> <laughs> so now you're we spreading it. it to your family.
0: <laughs> exactly. Now who knows who they're showing it to? Hopefully a lot of people.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the great things about YouTube is is, and, and the, technology that's out there to go out and film some of these birds and I mean flame bower birds are found in western New Guinea. They're in one of the more isolated places in the entire world and a place that's not easy to get to. And so the idea that there's this incredible high def video of them doing their doing their thing is amazing. And so for the
0: listeners who haven't who aren't familiar with the Flame Bower bird, they need to go look up the videos of them. But Can we just give a little description of, like, what they look like? Because they're so vibrant and so, like, I mean, it's, it's incredible how much they stand out.
1: They're bright red, bright yellow, vivid black, a little bit of white, and they have incredibly yellow eyes that if you look at the pictures of their displays or the videos of their displays, they can individually control the pupil size. So their eyes are pulsing more and less yellow in them independently. They can do that, control each eye independently. It's, in, it's mind-boggling, their displays, the fact that things like that can evolve. It's just, all so, all bowerbirds are really cool. But this one's display for me was just particularly amazing.
2: So, so I wanted to make, uh, I had a question on that, and that is, do females, be, are they able to move their pupils like like the males do? Do you think that's a, a I don't, sexually selected trait?
1: I would think so. Well, their eyes don't seem as vivid of a yellow in pictures at least. Obviously the specimens we don't have this exact thing in our collections, but specimens don't have eyes, so can't check. <laughs> but I didn't what think What are of they looking... trying to communicate
0: with their with their manipulating of the pupil? Is it I mean, is it more well, attractive to have a larger pupil or same.
1: Like this. I think it's yeah. the variation, right? So if females prefer novelties, and certainly changing the size of your pupil is novel, um, you're more attractive. So the more out there you can be in some groups of birds, the more attractive you are. And in this case, it's interesting because bowerbirds, they attract not just with their own physical presence, which is a, you know enough on its own, but they like extend their behavior into their environments by, um, and I don't just mean with dancing because they obviously have that kind of stuff. They look like a matador with their cape, but (laughs) they, they extend themselves into the environment with, they make these things called bowers, like little houses, like stuff. And there's different ways you can make a bower. Um, And this one makes it by putting straight up and down sticks and then, lays out its treasures in between the sticks so it cleans this area out it very precisely puts the sticks in in lines and then it displays its it displays how good it is at finding things that females like and so that can be rocks feathers fruits flowers uh bones probably even but now that humans have invaded the world where they live, they are also using human products, whether that's shotgun shells or um, bottle caps. And, the you know, when you get a water bottle and you pull the the plastic thing off before you unscrew it, well, those are in their bowers. Wow. And apparently the males know which colors the females choose, and so they, you know— 'Cause blue's not that common of a color in nature, right? So if you prefer novelties and all of a sudden the male has found a garbage can where tourists have put their stuff in and all of a sudden there's all this blue stuff, they take it out, they put it in their bower. And if they if the females like that, which I imagine they do because they're so keen on novelties that Every soon, every male is going to be looking for blue bottle caps because they have to compete. They have to, you know, they have to step up because the females going from one bower to another bower saying, "Eh, are you good enough? Oh, your lines aren't perfect, and someone else has better blue stuff in their in their bower." So I'm going to check all these things out, and then I'm going to go back to the other one.
2: But I but I think you're bringing up a really interesting point there, which is which shows up in actually one of the videos, uh, the the one of the BBC videos, which is that other males are probably learning by checking out sure. what other males are are doing, and there's that's probably one of the ways the whole bower system actually evolved over time, and. Uh, The complexity of those behaviors in a situation where, for instance, one of the things I think is fascinating about these bowerbirds is their vocalizations are pretty rudimentary. There's just kind of these gurgles and growls and things. And so they've completely come up with another system to actually project themselves to to females. and that's gone some into some pretty incredible directions.
1: I went down a whole bunch of rabbit holes about pictures of Bowers because I got fascinated by them because they line things up in a size way so that it, they don't just randomly put different sized objects in. They put them in to make it look like you're going further down. So the, all these optical illusions about distance and how they lay out their, um, their objects and their bowers.
0: How, like, do they observe other birds build their bowers or how do they learn, how does one bower bird decide, you know, I'm going to build this and this is how I should build it. Do they learn it from other birds or is it instinctual or
2: some combination of both? That's a really interesting question. Um, I would assume in a lot of these birds that have these kinds of display mechanisms, they're... They're almost always long-lived. And you do have a period of time before males reach sexual uh, maturity where they probably are going around and learning what other males do. And we should talk about long-tailed mannequins sometime, which is a bird from South America that where they dance for, for females. And um, there's very clear... Learning in that species, and I don't i mean one of the things I think again I come back to this is it's amazing outside of the bowers there's not a whole lot of information about flame bower birds in terms of what's known scientifically um they don't know much about what they eat in general um they they, they the females go off and nest and are, are very discreet in terms of their nesting they they're, they're Trying to be as unobtrusive as possible, and so that's true in the plumage too. And so, a lot of times, there's not much known about the the nest raising biology or the chick raising biology of of uh, birds like this. And so, it's it, it's interesting because you know here you've got this absolutely flamboyant part of their their uh, natural history, but then a lot of the other parts are are as hidden as they could possibly be from people.
1: And of course, males don't help raise the young, right? They don't build nests and they don't help. In that species, um, not all bower birds are like that with that kind of displays. There are some that have, you know, biparental care and don't build bowers in that same way. But um, but the ones that do that, these elaborate displays and build these elaborate bowers, that males don't help. Wait, so the bower is just for show? It's not for shelter or anything? Nope. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. No, and,
2: and, it, and, and it's fascinating to me because it, the male, you know, in addition to what Shannon was saying about the way the sticks are oriented, you know, it's, it's basically the size of the female's body so that when you finally get a female that is attracted to your bower and you've gone through your display, which is incredible, it's almost like she's held in place a little bit for, for copulation to to occur, which I just I think is really bizarre, too.
1: They're like anthropology curators because they curate a 100 percent curate the things that they put in there um, in their powers. It's not random. They don't just toss things in there. They clean it all up. It has to look perfect um, from their perspective, Uh to attract a female. So they're very, if you were to drop something in there that didn't belong, they would almost certainly throw it out.
2: And as people will see in one of those videos on YouTube is is they have this sequence where the male goes through all the procedures, the female seems really interested, and another male shows up and the courting male decides to go after the chase off the male, as opposed to mating with the female. And, And you start realizing that in a lot of these systems, these birds, these males are spending hours of the day just trying to get a, one or two females to come in, if they're lucky, and and so it's it's a the time budgets for these birds are just completely bizarre relative to the way we think about a lot of things.
0: Do we know? Do they reuse the the oh. bower like each? Each year, each mating season, or do they start from scratch and build a new one?
1: I don't know.
2: So, 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 my guess is that that a lot of that is good places for bowers are probably uh, places the birds will come back to. In other words, there, there's some aspect of the landscape; it's probably got a degree of openness, and and they've done this with some other species where they've been able that that have display, you know, so like the sharp-tailed grouse that you guys were thinking about we're seeing in Colorado, they have lecking areas that they come back to that happen to have good features that they like um, for various reasons. And so I'll bet that the the flame bower birds, those sticks aren't going to last forever. They're they're very small sticks. And and if there's rain and wind, they're going to basically fall apart over time. So uh, I'll bet they, they, and they're going to rot eventually, too. And so so I'm guessing they have to rebuild bowers on an annual basis. And there's probably some site fidelity, but I'll also bet there are new ones that crop up on a regular basis.
1: What do they do with the stuff that's in their bowers, do you think? Because I imagine there's a lot of, if the male is off chasing another male, that a a third male might come in and steal parts of the, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever shiny and new and they like from in there. So... So they have like a little chest that they put things in for the winter. (laughs) Um, What do you think they do with that stuff?
2: I don't know. I I mean, I think the breeding seasons are are comparatively long, too. It's a very different system. So that's probably not a system, for instance, that could exist very well in in temperate latitudes. And yet at the same time, there's a really fascinating shorebird called a ruff, which absolutely is a a lekking species where... The males have these wild plumage variations, um, and we should talk about that sometime. But these plain bowerbirds—one of the another thing I keep wondering about is—is is the oranges and reds that they possess are really optically much stronger than almost anything else I can think of in the bird world. And and how you produce that is a is a fascinating thing to me. They
0: not have a lot of predators where they are if you know if you're that that bright you know aren't they more susceptible to something seeing them
2: well that's a really good question and and the 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 folks that the behavioral people that study things like sexual selection would point out that that basically the female is selecting traits that probably reduce the longevity of the males (laughs) that they're they're mating with and it's like how does that work and those are those are really intriguing questions, you know. So coming back to the pupil size, maybe there's nothing maladaptive about doing that, but certainly if you're sitting out and displaying in an open area and you're bright yellow, every predator in the forest ought to be able to see you, and and that ought to be a problem.
1: Yeah, yeah but if you if you have enough copulations, then you put enough babies. Although they don't have large clutch sizes. 1 to 3 I think is um is the average uh so it's not like they're putting a whole bunch of um output probably cuz a female has to raise them on her own she can't she can't raise large broods like that when i was looking up how many bowerbirds we had we we have um 16 individuals in our collections from this genus and what it reminded me of is their placement in the tree of life. So in our really old taxonomy that our collection was organized by, they're in Paradisiidae with the birds of paradise. Um, So they're, they were considered part of crows, part of corvids, but uh, once DNA-based studies came out, that's not true. They're not corvids. They're in a somewhat uncertain position in the tree of life for, for songbirds. So I found that really interesting. And it looks like from the limited DNA studies that have been done, that they're related to tree creepers, so Australian tree creepers. And they're kind of outside of corvids and in one of the major lineages of um, of songbirds. So they don't go with the things that they've been nested next to in field guides and in uh, taxonomies, which is really interesting too. I can see why you might think that they're with um, birds of paradise, you know, their distributions, the elaborate feathers and display behaviors, all of that might make you think that, but they're actually not part of that lineage.
0: How recent have you been able to do all like kind of the DNA studies, like to be able to tell that it's no longer part of that family, that it's part of another?
1: There are some tissues for some of these things. There have been very relatively few expeditions, recent expeditions, that would be collecting tissues to that part of the world. So there are some, but there are a lot of these birds in... Well, a lot is overstating. There are birds in the collections across the world. And now that we can get pieces of, uh, of tissues toe pads and things like that and sequence um, significant amounts of their genomes, we can start placing some of these things better in the tree of life. Um, It's not a substitute for modern material, which lets you do a lot more. And in this case, for example, trying to understand where genes are being expressed, which ones and where and how. So what is being expressed in the eyes? So the the eyes, it's not like feathers. The color in the eyes isn't like feathers. There are special cells, cr- chromatophores, that have um, the color in them, in this case, yellow. So they make colors different than the way colors are put in feathers. But we don't know, I mean, what's being expressed in their brain when they're doing this.
0: And are there feathers, is there pigment in their feathers? Or is that a yeah. thing where it's refracting light?
1: Well, there's got to be, I I don't know this, but there's, I would, if I had to bet, I would lay all of my not very much money um, in a bet that they have uh, ultraviolet colors. There's some kind of structural color involved in that, the vividness of the yellows and the reds. Um, There's going to be some aspect of structure that's making those colors so vivid, so shiny the way they are. But but yeah, there are carotenoid pigments,
2: and, and that's that's not a unique color combination in the sense that there there are birds. There's a, a genus of mannequins in South America, which are also have this bright yellow and red combination, um, and are are lekking species. Yeah, I think the 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 thing about them, you know, the, as Shannon was saying, their their distribution is is confined to New Guinea and Australia, and so the the better known species are are in australia um and some of those live in some drier habitats and and uh but they do the same kinds of things where they they build different and the bowers vary across the different species fairly dramatically based on what's available to them and yet what that says from an evolutionary standpoint you know as shannon was talking about earlier is that that the species with biparental care may not have as fancy a bower system as the ones where literally the male is going off after after they mate simply because the the sexual selection in that system has driven the evolution of of more fancy bowers over time
1: yeah i'd like to know what's going on in the female brain when she's watching Those, I mean, it's like, does she get hypnotized? Because when you watch the videos, they're like Mm -hmm. completely hypnotic. And I I don't know. You can't ask them, unfortunately.
2: No, but, but, you know, there's an interesting thing where, where you could imagine a time where people might be able to put some electrodes in, in birds and monitor brain activity and in females as they're, they're watching some of these things. And, and, Those are really fascinating questions to think about.
1: Yeah, we were at a, we ran a symposium um, a little while ago on kind of behavior and the things that they know about spiders now, because they can really track spider eye movements. It's just, it's just mind boggling. So the fact that, you know, someday we'll be able to understand a lot more about what the female birds eyes are doing uh, and their brains are thinking about as they do that what genes are being e- expressed um especially when they go to choose right so what ultimately what is you know what is making them make that final choice i wonder how many males they visit how big the territories can't be that big cuz you wouldn't want to be too far apart from your other cuz you want to take advantage of a female being at one um, at one bower and build your bower close enough that you can check out what's going on but not so close
0: is the is the flame bowerbird the only one that manipulates its pupil like that or do other bowerbirds do that too
2: so that, so there's a perfect example of a trait that my guess is they may not have even realized until they actually got high definition video of, of the birds displaying, I wonder how long they've even known about that aspect of it. Hmm. Um, and and so w- where I'm going with that is it wouldn't surprise me that it hasn't even been assessed all that well. And some of the bowerbird species that are really hard, for, for that, are have really local distributions in in places that are really hard to get to.
0: How difficult is it to get to to get to New Guinea? Yeah. New Guinea's like gotta be so difficult, right? I mean that's
2: with it. So so the so the interesting thing is bird watching being such a international phenomenon now, there there are regular trips to New Guinea and and there are places to go. But I think the seasoned birders that have been there and I haven't been would tell you that it's it's one of the more uh rustic and and difficult places to get around uh you know the roads aren't good some of the best birding areas are are definitely in places that are very difficult to get to um but there's there's definitely major tourism going on in various parts and and the interesting thing about new guinea is it's it's a big enough island that there's uh in order to see the birds of new guinea you actually have to travel to a lot of different parts across that country
1: yeah john's brother was recently there
2: Really? Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: But he's been all over the world. But wow. Yeah, there were a whole bunch of species. He can only get there.
0: Did he have anything on his list that he was able to cross off that he was hoping to see there, John?
2: Yeah, a whole bunch of oddball bird. Everybody goes there for the birds of paradise. But but flame bowerbird, for instance, is another good example of, of one that a lot of birders would be absolutely willing to make whatever special trip they had to do to, to get a chance to see.
0: All right. Well, I think we're getting close on time. Is there anything else on bowerbirds, on flame bowerbirds we wanted to touch on?
1: The idea that there's something that looks like that, that is so splashy and so fantastic and so mesmerizing that we don't know absolutely everything about it just goes to show how much there there is to learn left about almost everything in the natural world.
0: All right. We've got one mailbag question. This one is a little more local to Chicago, but this is from Ariana from Logan Square in Chicago. And she just asked, what are your favorite spots to go birding here in Chicago or within two hours of Chicago? She said she's new to birding and is just trying to figure out some good spots to look or at least how to look up where she could go.
2: Well, eBird would be the place to go to look up a lot of birding spots, although, you know, the Audubon Society's uh, actually the, the Chicago Bird Alliance now. It's changed its name from Chicago Audubon. You can often find places there. The big places in Chicago, obviously, are places like Montrose and, and Jackson Park, which are good all year round, and um, but especially good during migration.
1: Skokie Lagoons are, oh, I mean, almost down. everything. That's the thing, right? Go outside see what's out there, get better at identifying. You'll enjoy it. Every time you do it, you'll enjoy it more because you'll get better at it. Make your list so that you contribute to to birds. Join groups so that you can meet other people. Then you'll have people to go with to, you know, Madagascar or New Guinea. Yeah,
0: I think finding a group makes such a difference. That's made such a big deal for Amanda and I just kind of getting to know people. And then all of a sudden you find out like somewhere that was Just within a mile or two of your house is an excellent birding place you wouldn't have thought of until somebody in a group is like, oh, no, we can go here this time of year or this place would be better that time of year. Um, It's just, you know, it's been a really welcoming community to us. So, um, you know, sometimes it can be pretentious, but I think everybody is on board with trying to show everyone more birds and trying to help everyone. So in the end, when you kind of break into it, it's really inviting.
1: Your backyard is a good place to find birds. We had a saw-wet owl in our backyard. So, wow. Really? We did. At the beginning of the, well, I guess the first fall of the pandemic, that was our socialization. Everybody came to our yard um, because everybody was outside looking for the owl. You never know what you're going to find.
2: Any of the parks will have birds in them. And spring and fall migration, for instance, you you could be anywhere and, and have things come up show up like that saw what al shannon's talking about yeah so definitely get outside and and look around
0: right well i think that's a good place to call it then sean you want to close it out or shannon you have anything you want to close it out with this is the flame bower bird shannon's episode
1: (laughs) youtube can be your friend
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have a question for us that you'd like us to read and answer on the podcast, you can send it to podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to click subscribe or follow in your podcast app so you always get our newest episodes sent your way. Follow us on Instagram to see amazing photos of the different bird specimen that we discuss. And also, we now just joined TikTok. There isn't any dancing, but there are a lot of cool photos of birds, so check that out. Alright, thanks everyone for the support. See you all next week.